0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and it's Monday, June the 9th, 2014. And I'm joined, of course, as I am every Monday, with one Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Jeremy, how are you doing this fine day?
1: I'm doing great. I had a a beautiful weekend in the city of New York, and I'm excited to talk publishing.
0: Well... We can't talk about publishing, Jeremy, without mentioning an ongoing dispute that has been making waves across the entire industry with Amazon Hush and Hachette. What is the latest happenings on this front?
1: Stalemate, it sounds like. Uh, Both companies have dug in for a long negotiations. And we haven't really heard much out of either of them since Book Expo America, but it's really been all the talk in the industry for the past few weeks. Uh, a lot of people saying that it's going to be a long, difficult negotiation. The two sides are very far apart. Uh, some people saying that there, there are ways that the sides can compromise. Um, but basically, I think the next date to watch out for on the calendar is June 19th when the Silk Room comes out that following week. Will it hit the bestseller lists as hard as uh, it, it would have otherwise? Um, you know, will the publisher Hachette have been successful at getting people to go outside of Amazon to pre-order that book? Because as we know, pre-orders are a huge part of getting onto the bestseller list. Because what they do is they count up all those pre-orders from the past couple of months, and then when the book comes out, they all hit on that one day, and that's what propels a lot of those new releases right up onto the bestseller list. So we'll see uh, if that is if that happens. So
0: I uh, had an article on our site about Hachette uh, axing 3% of its U.S. workforce. Does this have anything to do with uh, the Amazon dispute?
1: Well, what I have been told by the Hachette folks is that no, it was a planned uh, reduction and that it's, it's separate from that. It, it's, I don't want to say that I don't believe them, but it, it's sort of, Hard to believe that the things aren't somewhat related. You know, if the company was going gangbusters in the beginning of the year, um, you know maybe that reduction wouldn't have happened. Maybe it is streamlining that has nothing to do with how how well the company is doing. Maybe it's something has been planned for you know a year or more, um, or maybe it's planning for a long and drawn out negotiation. You know, getting a little bit slimmer uh, and saving some money uh, in the next year or so. Um, So, uh, you know, the company has a little bit more in the tank if it has to go on a long negotiation. So I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but the company itself, it must be noted, says it has nothing to do with the negotiation.
0: So Amazon just announced today a new subscription system. Um, As you probably know, Jeremy, Amazon has... um, I guess in about the last year, they've really been hyping uh, to third-party websites and e-commerce services where you could pay with Amazon. So if you go to like an e-commerce site selling smartwatches or uh, phones or, or what have you, Amazon allows them to be able to uh, have their users pay for purchases uh, with their Amazon account. And Amazon is expanding upon this service going into subscriptions. And this is an arena most dominated by PayPal. You know, when you think of paying for online subscriptions, you you obviously think of PayPal first, but this is something that Amazon is getting involved in, where if you think about the Kindle Fire or maybe the Kindle e-readers with uh, digital newspapers and magazines, you can now take out a subscription and actually pay those monthly subscriptions directly with your Amazon account what what we're hearing is that um, amazon has scheduled a press event where they're undoubtedly going to announce their new smartphone and what a lot of people are saying is that with this subscription system you'll be able to actually pay your monthly phone bills directly to your Amazon account, uh, thereby sort of bypassing the carriers uh, altogether. So this actually raises an interesting question. If Amazon unveils a subscription system that will allow you to pay for your monthly phone bill directly with Amazon, do you think that this will cut out the phone carriers altogether?
1: Uh, I don't think it cuts out the phone carriers because I'm not sure that. I mean, maybe Amazon's going to announce its own 4G network, but that is a multi-multi-multi-billion-dollar investment, and that's the kind of thing that the company can't, you know, just hide. So uh, probably I don't think it's going to uh, shut out the mobile carriers entirely, but it certainly opens up intriguing possibilities for. Uh, self-published authors for small publishers that want to maybe have a recurring payment system. Um, it, and, and obviously, so many third-party retailers use Amazon. I mean, this really makes it um, you know, a very appealing uh, option for them if they want to get creative with how they retail. So
0: we're all familiar with LinkedIn, but now we have a new social network that's sort of a part of it called Inked in, and it's for authors. And when I originally heard about this story, Jeremy, I thought, a social network just for authors. This sounds awesome. But apparently, it's only for Simon & Schuster authors.
1: That's right. Simon & Schuster has launched, uh, it's calling it InkedIn. It's a uh, social network for its au- authors. Um, I think it's a really interesting idea. I mean, we are in an era now where authors... Uh, are making decisions around whether they want to work with publishers or not, where they have a lot more uh, choice than, than what they had before. Um, and you know, in this era of choice for authors, um, you know, the publishers have to do more than just pay the biggest advance or promise better marketing. They've got to do as much as they can to say, hey, there's a lot of benefit for working with us. Um, I think Simon and Schuster is really smart to uh, think of this very innovative thing. you know part of being an author that works with a big publisher is you part of this elite club um, but you 're kind of in the past part of a club that you know except for a couple of events here and there and maybe you share an agent or something with somebody you know you 're not socializing with the other members of that club that much, but this gives those other members of that club. a a a way to talk to each other and i think that's really interesting especially you know in the era of social media when talking to each other seems to be the thing that we constantly are wanting to do all the time um the other thing about it is that simon and schuster seems to have made a little bit of a bet on you know business um you know business books and and just getting into that market a little bit it has that website 250 words which is a really interesting way of gathering sort of that malcolm gladwell business guru focused audience um and you know this sort of LinkedIn social network, I think caters especially well to authors like that and who want to share ideas and want to share innovation. Um, so this is a really cool project for me. And, and you know, I don't see a purpose in having a social network for all authors. You know, why not just use Facebook um, or the or Twitter, the existing social networks? Um, but to have one that's a really small one, that's kind of an exclusive club, uh, makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Did you hear about the new young adult movie that's in theaters right now, *The Fault in Our Stars*?
1: Absolutely, and um, you know, it's congratulations to uh, John Green and um, you know the folks who worked on that uh, on the publishing side at Random House, Penguin Random House. You know, it was a huge hit; it was a box office smash, almost raking in fifty million dollars in its opening weekend. And for a non-comic book movie, that's that's a pretty strong opening weekend.
0: It is, and. I think that the strength of this movie has—it's um, really polarized a lot of publishing uh, websites right now, where a lot of people are asking the question: um, Are should adults be reading YA fiction? It's sort of stimulated this old debate that's been around for. Uh, you know, at least five years or so. Uh, there was an article on Slate where they were saying that adults should feel guilty about reading uh, YA fiction because the more uh, YA fiction adults consume, uh, the less of a chance that a really good, elevated, high level piece of literature will be published because, hey, you know, YA is selling will just green light most of those titles. Uh, what are your thoughts on adults reading YA fiction? Because this is uh, like an issue that's very contentious, and I guess over the weekend, based on this movie, it's sort of, uh, everybody's talking about it, from like the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to uh, blogs large and small.
1: Yeah, uh, the thing is, is that there has been a shift in the editor and agent world and on on the publishing side to trying to get the, to satisfy the demand, um, for you know YA books, but publishers have, to some extent, always done this. You know what, what's hot. They're trying to replicate it. They're trying to you know piggyback on on the, the next the next hit or the last big hit. It um, was really no different, I don't think, with YA being hot right now. Uh, and you saw that HarperCollins was able to, to not replicate, but to kind of uh, imitate. Um, Scholastic, successful Hunger Games with Divergent. So you can't blame the publishers, I don't think, for trying. Um, but I think you know, telling people they should feel guilty for reading the thing that they want to read is like uh, trying to stop the tide. It's just not going to work. It's not going to happen. Um, and it's really just link bait, in my opinion. But you know, they're they're certainly within their right to do that. Um, that said, I think that. Publishing is also so fractured that you know even though there has been a shift toward YA a little bit, I don't think that it means that big important books are getting completely ignored. Um, they are there have always been niche audiences for big important books and those next brilliant hits. I mean it's very very rare that a literary title even makes it onto the bestseller list. There are just a handful every year at most. Um, that, that touch the bestseller list. So I don't really think that that, that makes a, a tremendous amount of sense. And honestly, as someone who is just pro-books in all their forms and pro-literacy and pro-storytelling, I think most of the book publishing industry is this way. Uh, you know, I'd rather see a lot of people reading YA than not reading it all. Yeah,
0: I mean, I guess a lot of this falls back to the 2012 study that said 55% of all YA fiction is purchased by adults. So more than half of all uh, YA books are, are purchased by adults. And um, I actually wrote a story about this, not talking about how adults should maybe feel guilty or not, uh, or either way. But it's more about how our culture encourages us to perpetually we live our teenage years uh, through unnatural and prolonged adolescence, and um, I quoted a lot of um, you know studies and reports. It's basically how twenties and and thirty somethings. Um, You look at all the movies that are out, um, you know, starring uh, overgrown boy actors like Steve Carell or Luke and Owen Wilson, Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell, Seth Rogen. All those, you know, all those guys come out with multiple movies a year. They're like late 30s, early 40s, and it's all just you know, fart jokes, breast and crotch shots, beer pong, you know, uh, cheering awesome car crashes. And, you know, I, I think it's that sort of mentality that, you know, 30 uh, is the new 20. You know, you hear that a lot or 40s the new 30. You hear about that all the time. And I think that, you know, our, our culture is basically promoting prolonged adolescence. And in turn, people are reading the books that they did when they they were teenagers, whether it's guys reading their sci-fi and fantasy books or their their cyberpunk or, or girls reading their uh, romance and erotica books that they did when they were, you know, uh, when they were teenagers and they just kind of continue sticking with the books that they've always read in their 20s, in their 30s. And I think that that's part of one of the reasons why um, YA why fiction is read by adults, because it's the teenagers growing into adults that can't shake what they grew up reading and elevate themselves to a higher form of, of literature.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that explains it all. I mean, The Hunger Games is a pretty interesting, entertaining book, but I do think that you are tapping into an idea that a lot of people have been talking about over the past few years is that we sort of have this this new uh, acceptance of not growing up, of constantly entertaining oneself and not, you know, being responsible. Maybe that's a generational thing. Maybe it has to do with uh, the new kinds of social technologies that we have. I don't really know, but I don't, I think that might be part of it, but I don't think that's the entire story. I mean, uh, there have been a lot of interesting YA books. But I mean, you can also point to that YA has grown up a little bit, you know. Uh, some of the themes in The Hunger Game were, you know, pretty serious. There was a lot of uh, violence um, in the Hunger Games. Maybe you wouldn't have seen as much of that in, in fiction for uh, you know teenagers and tweens uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And now you're seeing stuff that adults are maybe a little bit more interested in reading about that resembles a little bit more adult literature. Um, so I think there's a lot of stuff coming together here to make this trend.
0: Okay, one thing that I wanted to talk about, and I'm not sure if you are aware of this at all, but uh, George R.R. Martin, uh, the guy that did Game of Thrones, uh, you may have heard of it. Uh, it's on TV. I think uh, at least like five or ten people watch it. Um, mm. So he's actually taken a novel approach in raising funds for charity. Um, he's doing this thing with the Wild Spirit Wolf Sanctuary and the food depot of san Fe. anybody who donates twenty thousand dollars will actually be by name in his next book and killed in a grisly fashion um mm. and they say that you know you could be a lord lean a knight a peasant a whore uh you know or anybody kind of in that universe but it kind of got me thinking that what about like kind of indie authors that have cultivated like a following that usually are, are sticking with one literary genre, whether it's like a romance and erotica writers or uh, pulp sci-fi writers, maybe a way that they could actually um, make some money. Because as we know, with indie authors, you don't get advances. You know, you, you don't be- you're not belonging to a publishing label. You're pretty well self-financed from either your prior book sales, or if you're just starting out as an author, you really don't have like a lot of avenues to be able to have enough money to be able to just sit down for a few months and pump out a book and it kind of got me thinking that do you think maybe authors should like do some sort of campaign where they could put the readers in the book as either a main character or a minor character for like you know maybe a few hundred dollars or maybe like a thousand dollars and then use all this money uh from you know uh raising this to actually finance their next book
1: yeah, well, you know, uh, this has been done. Authors have done this, where they've asked people input on the ending of the book, or they've done a Kickstarter where, as part of the Kickstarter, you, a character can be named after you. So, this has been done before, and I feel like, you know, like a lot of really interesting ideas that come up in digital publishing that ebooks really make possible, um, it's marginal. You know, it's cool, it's neat, it can be done well on a very small stage, but it's not something that's going to take the industry by storm.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I'm I a fan of a few particular authors uh, in general where I read, like, all their books, you know, uh, like a Tom Robbins or a Douglas Copeland or a William Gibson. And, I mean, if they ran a campaign where I could be, like, a character in their book, I, I think I would pay for that just because I, I really like them as authors and I read all their books anyways. It'd be kind of cool to, um you know, kick in, like, 5Gs and have like, a character named after me knowing that those books will be read by... You know, at least a few hundred thousand, if not a million plus people. Sure. So, sure. you know, th- this is just something that's interesting to me. Now, you wanted to talk about title and what they're doing with uh, Christian titles
1: yeah so entitles you know is sort of uh, one of the new ebook subscription services that's out there. It is more like a book club. you pay a set fee per month and have access to a large range of books, but you can only and you you get to own them you can download them, you own them free and clear um but you can only do a couple a month for the for the set fee whereas with oyster and some of the others, it's sort of unlimited reading um, so they launched a the company launched a new vertical uh that is dedicated toward christian um uh, christian uh tax uh, fiction and non fiction, and I think this is a really interesting idea um, because vertical subscription services have been around and have been working for a very long time. Uh, Safari is probably the best example of these services, and you know for these other more general services to sort of branch out and launch verticals, maybe that you can buy into at a lower cost. Um, or, or use them as ways to bring people in for the larger, uh, the larger vertical or the larger subscription service, I think is a really interesting idea. And I've been thinking a lot about these ideas because Wednesday is the Digital Book World ebook subscription service debate, and we are now in the final preparations working with both teams to make sure that they have their, their spears sharpened for the debate. And um, you know, just thinking about ways that ebook subscription services can work for authors, publishers, and readers is something I've been really interested in lately.
0: Jeremy, I think it's time for the the main event of the day, and this is something that uh, I know you. We we've talked a lot about this over the years, and Barnes and Noble is actually getting back into the tablet game, which we knew that that they were doing from the last uh, few shareholders announcements. But now the details are crystal clear. Uh, Barnes and Noble has put in an order for one million Samsung branded tablets for the 7-inch and the 10-inch variety and Barnes & Noble is for the first time ever outsourced the hardware design, uh, the infrastructure to another company, therefore saving prospectively millions upon millions of dollars and the only thing that the Barnes & Noble team is doing is the software uh, for this and it's called Samsung for Nook. What do you know?
1: Well, I probably know less than you uh, about it um, or, or about the same. I don't have any inside dirt on this, um, but, you know, this is a good way for Samsung to sort of keep working on the digital content delivery business. Uh, it sort of abandoned its ebook business, its aspirations about a year after it, it sort of announced them very quietly. Um, and, you know, for Barnes & Noble, this should offload some cost and its it's a tablet business and allow it to sort of keep uh, stay in the game. You know that said, the companies that are succeeding in this area are just launching into it full throttle. Um, you know, when it comes to selling e-books, uh, I think you know, Cobo and Apple are having some success battling Amazon outside of the U.S. Um, and Amazon obviously is just hasn't taken its foot off the pedal in any of these areas in terms of building hardware or software or e-books. Um, and those companies are the ones that are just really going full throttle, and then you 've got the ones that are sort of kind of trying to enter the business either on the hardware side or the software side or both and they 're they 're not being successful and I just think it's such a cutthroat business there 's so much at stake in the long term that this seems to me you know a way for Barnes and Noble to sort of you know its, its exit from this side of its business. I just don't see with the company's leadership, with the company's direction, the company's fundamentals, it not separating from the retail stores, that Nook does not separate from the retail stores uh, in some meaningful financial way in the next year or two. So here, here's what we
0: know with the hardware. Um, The previous generation, Nook HD and HD+, Plus, which is still available in uh, the US and UK, they use dual-core chips. Uh, The Samsung uh, will use quad-core chips, so you should see snappier and uh, better response time in in games that you play or apps and, and, and this and that. And the one kind of downside is the resolution is actually lower on these new devices as opposed to the previous generation. So... Barnes and Noble really hypes their magazines, their newspapers, their their graphic novels, uh, their kids' books. You know, the the read-along with me books. It's all visually arresting uh, stuff, and with lower resolution, I feel that maybe that this is stepping down a little bit, you know, things aren't going to look as crisp or clear, uh, as they once did. And if you look at what Amazon is doing with their tablets, I mean, Barnes and Noble is coming out with new devices that is significantly stepped down from the Google Nexus or the Amazon Kindle Fire HD, uh, plus and things like that. So this is kind of, um, Yeah, I don't really know what Barnes & Noble is doing with this. I I know it's way cheaper for them to just get the hardware from Samsung at a deal. And part of the contract that Barnes & Noble signed with Samsung was Samsung will promote these tablets for Barnes & Noble. So uh, Barnes & Noble will have to spend less on a marketing budget because Samsung has said that, you know, we're going to run print. We're going to run videos. We're going to really hype this up as, um, you know hype this up for you sort of on your behalf so my question is is that Barnes Noble is doing the software and from screen grabs I've seen uh, it looks significantly different from prior models so we've we've all seen the nook HD HD plus or maybe the nook color and nook tablet through the evolutionary process the the UI has changed the main menus have changed uh, you know things have have cumulatively seen an upgrade but I really think that the software for this new tablet actually looks tremendous and uh, that's maybe one of the driving factors behind this but what a lot of people are saying is that why would you buy the Samsung for Nook tablet, when you could just get a stock Android tablet from Samsung the 7-inch version at a cheaper cost and actually use it internationally
1: yeah and that's a really good question and and I think it's a similar question when you think about the marketing so Samsung gonna market the Barnes & Noble Nook tablet against its own tablet Um, it's gonna have to divide its marketing resources uh, and tell people to go buy the Nook tablet and at the same time. Tell people to go buy its tablet. Uh, it just—it doesn't—it it is a little confusing.
0: Yeah, no, it totally is. I mean, they're they're basically competing against themselves. But from my understanding is is that this is the first time that Samsung has really done a white label tablet for somebody. So you're not actually not going to see the, the quintessential Samsung bloatware that you may have seen on their Samsung Galaxy phones or on their own tablets where you have, you know, the Samsung App Store and chat on and, you know, sort of all the, the many apps that you can't actually inst- install when you buy these a part of the agreement with Barnes & Noble is that you won't see any Samsung bloatware it's you can think of it as a pure vanilla tablet but with Barnes & Noble responsible for all of the software uh, on this my kind of question is is do you think that Barnes & Noble will continue to just focus on the US and UK market or do you think through the Samsung agreement that they'll actually expand into other European markets because uh, Nook Press if you remember a few months ago actually expanded into like France and Spain and and other markets where people in those countries could self-publish titles and actually list them on Nook Press And so do you think that this is setting the stage for the next generation Nook tablets actually being marketed for the first time outside of those two core markets?
1: You know, when I first joined the book publishing industry, Barnes & Noble was gaining market share, it was losing money, but it was growing its revenue and the Nook was this credible competitor. And then the Glowlight came out and it was the first backlit e-reader. It was so smart and Barnes & Noble was sort of like somehow staying in the game and competing. and, and just the past several years uh, you know the the DOJ ruling and the and the um, uh, an ebook price fixing trial certainly didn't help, but but the Nook business has really been flailing, and um, occasionally it'll come out with something that's interesting or good, um, but but basically it's been uh, not doing very very well at all. You know, I'd like to say that maybe this is a way Barnes and Noble is able to get into the international markets, but I just have seen Barnes and Noble, um, you know, become a genius at missing opportunities and um, not executing well. That I, it's really hard to put faith in the company that it's going to be able to do that. So I'm going to say no.
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, sadly, I think I'm along a similar vein of thought uh, as you are. I'd probably say no as well because following Barnes Noble ever since they made their very first device it's almost like they they continue to miss these awesome opportunities time and time again so I, I really don't see them as doing a, an about face or writing the ship uh, anytime soon one of the last things I want to talk to you about today is audiobooks and um, you know as we know audiobooks are On the upward trend Uh, we're seeing a lot of books and we're seeing a lot of book sales Uh, we've seen the audiobook industry grow from 480 million dollars in 1997 to almost 2 billion dollars in in 2013 and a lot of people are getting into the audiobook game Uh, we're seeing in the States you know, uh, a large percentage of growth rate uh, in the UK right now. We're actually seeing a 6.8% growth rate uh, in terms of revenues, continuing to be on the upwards trend. Uh, in Germany, we're seeing audiobooks actually uh, do better sales-wise than eBooks, and 7% of the overall population in Germany is actually buying audiobooks or have listened to audiobooks. Um, What are your thoughts on on the audiobook industry in terms of how they're doing now and and the potential for them to uh, get even bigger?
1: Well the success that audiobooks have seen over the past uh, several years is due in part to downloaded audio being a greatly expanded category Um, and I expect that we will uh, see that continue. I think audiobooks are are just fantastic. We're also entering an era where it's very inexpensive for self-published authors to create audiobooks, um, where it's easy for even small publishers to produce and create audiobooks. And you've got uh, the channels like Audible.com clamoring for more content. So I see the trend uh, continuing.
0: Yes, same. I mean, I I, I did a report on this and, you know, uh, CDs – Basically represented seventy eight percent of all audiobook sales in two thousand eight, and then fast forwarding just a few years into twenty thirteen, and digital audiobook sales accounted for sixty one percent of the industry. So in a few short years, the the digital audiobook really kind of captured a lot of market share, and I think a lot of this is you know, due to Audible, but also the audiobook creation exchange, which is something that uh, Amazon made uh, a number of years ago, where it syncs up uh, producers with authors. And if you have, say, Jeremy, you wrote a book, uh, you could actually use uh, ACX to find, um, you know, a producer or maybe a narrator if you want someone with a British accent or someone to do like the remastering for you. You could actually have a book that you already wrote or maybe your backlist of titles and suddenly make like five or six different audiobook versions of it and then put it out for sale on Audible or for iTunes or a number of other channels. And I think that this is sort of one sort of way that a lot of people haven't really talked about with audiobooks where the backlist you know people like stephen king that has a huge backlist or james patterson that is a huge backlist of titles i mean these types of people could generate a copious amount of audiobooks by just making audiobook versions of their very latest titles or, or their titles that they've written in the last you know 10 or 20 years and this is something that really they haven't done but i think in for audiobooks to be taken to that next level I think publishers really have to kind of focus on making audiobook versions of a very extensive backlist.
1: Yeah, and a lot of them have. And as the costs come down, and the costs have continued to come down, it will be easier for all kinds of publishers to do that. And I think there will come a time when the audio catalog isn't quite as large and diverse as the ebook catalog, but it will. It'll start to get really big just like ebooks have
0: yeah it looks like uh mcmillan and simon and schuster are very bullish about increasing audiobook sales uh, all of them have said that uh Audiobook sales pre-well right now represent 10% of the ebook industry uh, in the US, but they're really hoping to accelerate the growth to over 20% uh, within the next two years. And that will really enhance the bottom line and be able to uh, make you know uh, make going digital a little bit more viable because you could have both ebooks and audiobooks. Uh Jeremy, we've talked a lot a lot about. Some very interesting issues today. Um, do you have any final thoughts?
1: I just would love to see everybody come to the Digital Book World ebook subscription debate uh, Wednesday. It's this Wednesday, uh, 12 p.m. Eastern Time. It's free. Uh, you can go to digitalbookworld.com and click on the webcast button, and it'll take you right to a, a page where you can uh, register for the webcast. Um, we will be advertising it through our newsletters over the next few days in our Twitter feed at DigiBookWorld, and I hope to see all of you there.
0: All right. Well, I know I'll be there, and I encourage everyone else to uh, check that out. Um, on our front, we are making a number of Crazy good enhancements to uh, the Goodie Reader app store these days. Uh, We have about 32,000 apps available right now, and we're actually in the process of doing a few things. Uh, One is implementing an auto update feature in our main Android client. So, uh, in the past, if you downloaded our client and you wanted to install an update, uh, you had to go to our website, manually do it. It was jumping through a lot of hoops. Now we're making it so uh, if there's an update to to the Android client itself. When you fire it up, it'll automatically download and install it for you, which dramatically simplifies the process. Uh, we're actually also making a new user account uh, system for our website. So if you do use our Android client and take advantage of our cloud storage system that keeps track of all the apps that you've ever installed. So if you buy a new device, you can easily install any of your favorite apps. We're bringing that feature to our web version of our app store so you could actually have a cloud locker of all of your prior installed apps and whatever apps that you may install from the website will actually show up now within the android client itself so a lot of kind of cool features and i uh, will also be in las vegas uh, in a week or two uh, for the American Library Association annual conference so if you want to be kept abreast of the situation in terms of digital uh, in the library space we'll be covering that uh, conference in its entirety so you can keep your browsers locked to giddyreader.com for all the pertinent information so you've been listening to the Giddy reader radio show the number one podcast in the world for publishing ebooks audiobooks and all of that jazz Uh, everybody Take care.